So I think most everyone has been here somewhat recently. Uh, not as many new people to Against the Stream here tonight, but I've been doing a series of talks on the primary teachings of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path since January, and so we're rounding the bases. We started the, talking about the Eightfold Path a few weeks ago, starting with talking about wise view or wise understanding, which is the first factor of the path. And then last week, Mikey uh, subbed the class for me, and he talked a little bit about intention and the intention of renunciation. And so I wanted to, because I find that it's a useful thing to reflect on, I want to talk about the connection between the first and second path factor, wise view or understanding and wise intention. So those two parts of practice. <clears throat> In a way, wise view or wise understanding is both the beginning of, of the path of the Dharma and the culmination of the path. And the path of practice is not a linear path, it's a more of a circular path of practice. Every path factor, if you're new, they're wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. These things all support each other. We really view kind of heads up the path because without an understanding or a wise understanding of kind of what direction we're heading in, you know, it's kind of hard to stay a path, especially the middle path, which is the path that Siddhartha woke to, a path of balance, a path of moderation, a path that's in the middle, in the middle of our lives, waking up in the middle of our lives with some tools. And so this is kind of what the Buddha offered as a pragmatic teacher. How do we wake up in the middle, the path of our lives, in the middle of that path with some tools, with some inner resources? And so to do this, what we want to kind of do is to, we, we ha want to have a little bit of an understanding of maybe what it is, what are some of the things or the tools that we can use that can help us to alleviate stress and suffering in our lives. Mindfulness, the tools of mindfulness, is practice of present time awareness, non-judgmental, responsive, investigative, kind awareness. The practices, the, the heart practices, these intentional qualities, these ethical qualities of kindness, of compassion, of appreciation, of equanimity. The ethical trainings, looking at the ways that we act, speak, and work in the world. These trainings all center around this understanding and this view of non-harming. So in the beginning, we have this map that the Buddha laid out 2,600 years ago. And the Theravadan Buddhists, the type of Buddhism that we practice here at Against the Stream, sometimes they call us list worshippers. Because we have a bunch of maps, we have a bunch of lists. <clears throat> and these lists are helpful. They help, help us to see the terrain. They help us to kind of know where we're going a little bit and not get too lost.
but the point is not to get better at reading a map. Uh, the point is to walk the path and to have some experience, develop experiential wisdom, wisdom by going in the middle of our lives, walking the middle path, getting a little bit lost, looking back at it, and adjusting. That's what my experience of Dharma practice has been. I, I haven't found any path that's been straight and narrow. There's a Buddhist teacher named Stephen Batchelor, and he says that there are no lines in nature. Right? And it's a natural, the Dharma feels like a very organic, very natural path of practice. So wisdom is messy sometimes, and it requires the willingness, the courage to continue to show up, to continue to you know, look at where we're going and be interested where we're going. And through patient and consistent practice, through accountability, in our direct investigation, we develop and are invited to experience the Dharma, which just means the way things are. And I a little bit feel like after all this time, a little bit disappointed that the Dharma, this really great thing that the Buddha ties, really what the Dharma is, is just the way things are. It's nothing, it's very, it's very like, you know, anticlimactic a little bit. It's like, well, here you are, this is what you get. It's a humbling path of practice. But we can look at the way things are with some tools, with some resources. So we can actually see more clearly. This is the wisdom side. And we can respond wisely. We can creatively engage. And the clarity that we get, this view, this view is the culmination of the practice. So our view gets a little more clear. We get a little more understanding because we've been walking around for a little while with our eyes open. You know, we haven't been just looking down at the map or the smartphone or the whatever. We've been looking up a little bit more because mindfulness helps us to slow down and to check in. And this is very against the stream, right? To come out on a Sunday night from 7 to 8.30. I was talking to a friend about this the other night. I can't believe how many people come here and do this sometimes. And it's like, I'm glad y'all do because I would be, uh, you know, I feel supported by that. I feel like I have a community, but it's very you know, counter to really what the mind wants to do. And I don't know, you don't have to raise your hand and admit this, but I know for myself there are countless times where my mind talks me out of wanting to come here. Unfortunately, i got to lead the group, right? Or Otherwise, there are definitely days where I would have talked myself out of it. <clears throat> but we start, you know, we start to show up and we sit and we practice and the view gets a little bit clear and we say, oh yeah, this is good for me. I feel that. I've experienced that. I've witnessed that. And so we, you know, we, we can come. We can remember that. That wisdom becomes clear. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, what is needed is knowledge of things as they really are, not conceptual knowledge. Knowledge is an idea, but perceptual knowledge, a knowing which is also a seeing, a seeing for yourself. This type of seeing develops into wisdom and enables us to grasp things as they are in actuality, directly and immediately, free from the screen of ideas, views, and assumptions our minds ordinarily set up between themselves and the real. 
The reason why the view, the view, the lens that we see our world through is so important is because it informs how we think, speak, and act. And regardless of whether we're willing to pay attention to how we see things, we still have a view. Right? We, we have many views. And the problem with the view, there are a couple things really, is that we tend to, the way that I understand the world um, is based on past experiences. You know, the way that I understand the world is based upon old information. It's based upon, uh, you know, these kind of desire systems of my lower brain, the wanting to have, the gotta have, gotta get rid of pleasure, pain, reptile brain, right? And so the way that I see and I understand things is sometimes a little bit, it's not so clear because it's clouded by bias. And there are lot, lots, the more that I sit, the more I see how much I don't know, how much, really the thing about the view that the Buddha was pointing towards is, it wasn't so much he was like, here's a view that you need to take on. He was like, really what we're trying to do is to not, cling or fixate to a view. He said, nothing causes more suffering for human beings than clean, clinging to a fixed view. <coughs> so there are a couple reasons why the view kind of gets fixed or why we the view, our understanding of things is messy. And one of those I call magnification. So this is that when we see something, when, when we experience a person, a place, a thing, uh, the mind tends to reduce it down. The mind tends to focus in and narrow in on only certain parts or aspects of it that it wants to see. And this is uh, in AA, they call this, I actually like this about AA. They say that it's the magnificent magnifying mind. And I like that because it's very much what I notice when I uh, am able to tune into that is that the mind likes to reduce things down to something that it's, you know, it exaggerates. And so uh, you could call this narrow-mindedness. You could call this one of the aspects of this, uh, this magnification is black and white thinking. I'll give you a hint. I'll say a word and see what comes up. Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, usually most of us in this room, whether you like him or don't like him, I don't care, you probably either like him or don't like him, right? We probably focus in on qualities that we like or that we don't like. And the reality is, is that there are no lines in nature, even though I would say, yeah, mostly probably not that much of a good person myself, that would be my view. Uh, but uh, there are things, there are qualities we can't, we, we can easily, the mind easily reduces things down to what it's seen and what it's heard and what it's felt and what it's experienced. But there are qualities that are far beyond what we're able to see. And so not to say that, you know, we shouldn't have boundaries or we shouldn't uh, use our view wisely or to say, hey, I, some, I've been burned enough times and I'm not willing to engage in that or that person's oppressive or that person's uh, actions are harmful. It's not that, but what it is saying is it's saying, uh, can we open a little bit and see that things aren't as black and white as the mind makes them? And the view can become a little more gray. 
Another way that this uh, black and white can manifest, or this narrow-mindedness, this form of magnification, is in exaggeration. This is the best thing that's ever happened. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. If you really pay attention, I, for me, my mind does this all the time. All the time. I can't believe this is happening to me. You know? Another way that this magnification works is in the form of identification. So this means that when we see something, when, we, when something gets magnified by the minor and it narrows in or focuses, when the view becomes too closed off, what happens is it starts to identify and it starts to think that this is I, this is who I am, this is what I am. So again, we reduce ourselves down. When the, uh, the mind state or the state of depression is present, uh, I'm so depressed. You know, I'm a depressed person. I don't even have to have that conscious thought. It's an attitude that the mind can develop. It identifies with that emotion. Mindfulness is interested in breaking that identification, saying, okay, yeah, a depression may happen a lot, but let's take that kind of I am a depressed person thing and flip it around a little bit. Depression is present in the mind, introspective awareness, mindfulness takes that view. Okay, how is depression? What is that, actually? What does it feel like? What are its qualities? Be interested in it. Is it a thing that you have? Is it a thing that who you are? Or does it change? Does it lift throughout the day? And the view can get caught up in what in neuroscience they call the negativity bias, which is the tendency for a, the mind to focus mostly on what it doesn't like. And they've uh, studied this, right? That our minds love to kind of focus on what it is about this experience that we don't. And then the thing that's so painful is the mind actually grabs hold of it. I don't like this. And then it identifies with it and it holds the thing that we don't like in place. Instead of allowing the thing that we don't like to you know, come and go, to change, to be transient. You know, to have more of a beginner's mind around what we're experiencing. So this is magnification. It's one of the qualities of the mind. Um, another quality is fixation. So these are the same on the same coin. But uh, fixation is that, you know, like I said earlier, the people, the places, the things that we're experiencing in every moment of experience are constantly changing, but we remember them based on past experiences. So... Uh, the mind remembers a version of something or someone and it brings it up when we see it right it br- it brings up that that uh, you know that view and this is really helpful it, they call this uh, procedural memory when you're like driving a car so you need this to be automatic for certain things you drive a car you don't want to get in a car and every time be like fuck how do I do this again <laughs> right and have to like Read the manual every time. No, it just knows, okay, you do this, you do this, you do that. And you even have muscle memory. The body remembers, right? And, and, and so we forget that actually when we see people or places or things, the same exact thing happens. We have this kind of almost procedural relationship to things. And the body even remembers. Tightening in the stomach or, you know. So, for example... Um, like, uh, I'm Facebook friends with uh, this guy in middle school that used to bully me. 
And every time I see him, I'm like, fucking asshole, right? <laughs> but he's actually, like, a great guy. Now, he works for a nonprofit, and he's, like, surprisingly shares a lot of the political views I do, I, you know, uh... And like surprisingly, it's it seems like a really cool dude, but my mind's first inclination is just bully, right? It has that kind of resentment that's in there. Uh, this can work the same for pleasant things. You go back to the same restaurant to have the same bite of food you had yesterday, right? We remember what it was like, and so we go back to get the same thing, and then we have it, and you know, the lighting's different, the air's a little different, you get a different server, or a different cook, you know, different temperature of food slightly, whatever, and you can't quite recreate the thing. And so then it's kind of looking for this recreating of something, some other time and some other place. And this is another thing that the view does, is this, you know, fixates on something. One of the aims of Buddhist practice is just to develop a clearer lens in which we view. So, you know, this is so important because it informs the way that we think, speak, and act. And so one of the views that we want to undertake to develop this clear lens is this lens of what I talked about a couple weeks ago of, of karma. And karma... The first thing I always encourage people to do when they hear this word is to drop their view or understanding of what we in this culture, in this day and age, believe karma to be, this kind of merit bank of uh, righteousness or sin or whatever that's going to be. You know, you have like a debit or you have some debt, you have some merit debt, and it's going to have to, you're going to have to pay it back at some point or it's going to get you. Right, but instead, I always like looking at this karma. This, this, this it just means action. So it's like a field, a karmic field. We exist here, right here, in this experience, in a karmic field of potentiality, which is a weird word. But what that means is there are potential things that, in ways that we can think, speak, and act right now, that inform habits. They inform how we're likely to do that again and again and again. And it's not linear, but it's actually multifaceted and complex. So I, my past experiences shape how I'm likely to behave in the present, but I have some volition or some active capacity here in the present with mindfulness, with awareness, with a clear view to be able to change how I relate to the present so uh, these habits aren't so deeply ingrained or I can create new habits. And habits get a bad rep in Buddhism a lot of time, but a lot of times what we're saying is our liberation, our freedom is dependent upon, uh, it's a collection of good habits. So this is the practice of intention, of looking at, with intention, what are some of the things that I need to let go of in the present as I relate to this experience in my life, my life circumstances, what are some of the things I need to let go of in my mind, with my speech, with my action, and what are some of the things I want to develop? And whatever we're doing with our karma, with this action, we're creating that environment. We're planting the seeds, watering, sowing the field, and eating the fruit of our thoughts, speech, speech, and action. 
And so this is a really important view because actually the more that we develop this understanding, the more important it comes in down in the present experience when I'm thinking about the resentment or I'm you know thinking about how I can get away with something or manipulating something or I'm being greedy or selfish or whatever. You know, it actually comes down to like, do I want to practice this? I'm practicing this kind of greed right now. I'm getting a little bit better at that. And it doesn't have to actually be metaphysical at all. It's really science. It's basically at our root, what we're saying is, is that you know, just like you can practice with behavior, the piano or language or whatever it may be, and you get better at it, you practice everything we do. We get better at And so the, uh, you know, here we are in our field, and, and what mindfulness helps us do is it helps us to slow down enough to frame up the field and say, okay, what, it is, what is it that is the fruit that's ripe right now? What is it that I'm watering? What is it that's died that I haven't tended to? And sometimes, and a lot of times with mindfulness popular to, or against popular belief is that sometimes we don't like what we see in the field. It's like, oh, I don't actually really want to look at what I've been growing. It's like I've been eating the fruit of self-judgment and self-criticism for years because it's what I've been growing. And so to stop and to kind of look at that and take that responsibility on is like, okay, how do I work with that? Not to beat oneself up or get lost in more self-judgment and self-criticism about self-judgment and self-criticism, this endless cycle, right? But instead to talk, to stop in, in almost this compassionate slowing down and saying, oh, you know, how, what's the compassionate response? This is the intention that we can then bring forward. So the power of intention is that we can begin to incline, we can begin to practice and incline our thoughts, speech, and action towards habits of well-being and away from habits of self-generated suffering. But it takes the courage to sit down and to look, to almost inventory that, to be honest about that. The general intention in the beginning, the power of intention, uh, you know, as we start to talk about intention now, really the first thing that we develop is a, make a decision to live some type of ethical life, some type of, you could say, spiritual life, ethical life, but really, you know, not everyone, and I say this often because it's actually really important and inspiring for me that not everyone chooses to do what we're doing here, you know, even once. Many, many people don't really have an interest in living an ethical life or whatever that means, but living a spiritual life or whatever that means, but kind of making that decision that this is something I'm interested in, something around this is what I'm interested in. George Haas, one of the Against the Stream teachers, says that his first step in his Dharma practice when he first came to Buddhism is he thinks, and he thinks that everyone has to make a decision to be a good person. Right? He said that the first thing he tells is actually a really beautiful story about um, seeing someone falling down an escalator and getting really badly hurt and his sister running to go help this person, and his inclination was that it was a bothersome thing. He wished he hadn't seen it because he didn't have time and didn't want to deal with it. 
right? And in that moment, it kind of struck him that, like, he wanted to do better. He wanted to be better than that. You know, and so making that decision and seeing that in our own mind. Sometimes, oftentimes, my experience has been we make this decision when we see that we've been doing something over and over and over again and it's not working out, and so it's kind of like, all right, I'll try something else. You know, this is the, the realm, the wheel of samsara, of being constantly reborn into the same patterns over and over and over again. And when they kick up and they kick up and they kick up, then we make a decision, all right, time to do something here. For the Buddha, this, this inspiration to move towards an ethical life is called samvega, or spiritual urgency. And it was, for him, the seeing of birth, aging, sickness, and death. Seeing of and the understanding that these were qualities, that these were characteristics of existence that were unavoidable, that all human beings... And he really touched into the reality of that, saw death, saw sickness, saw you know, the aging of the body as a young person, and he had this urgency of, you know, to live a life as it's ordinary, ordinarily lived, just get a job, get, you know, kind of to just get through life was unsatisfying to him. And so he wanted something more, and there was this urgency that developed to want more out of than just getting through. <clears throat> So that's the power of intention. So the hard part, right, is staying with it, staying with that intention and remembering that and having that ur urgency. is not a daily thing. There's some things we can do to remember and to recollect our intention, to stay with it. The first is a behaviorist approach, which I love, and actually which is what the, the Buddha encouraged. Is before he taught anything else, he taught wise association, meaning... Get some good friends because they'll help remember, they'll help remind you of what's important and practice some service. It's really easy to connect with this intention for why it might be a good idea to live an ethical life, why it may be a good idea to live a life of compassion for self and others when we're helping other people, when we're actually connected to people that need our support. And so he encouraged those two things. Those are behaviors, right? Getting friends, having friends, engaging with friends, doing service. <clears throat> and then he taught uh, the three baskets of the, the sila factors, S-I-L-A, sila factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, which are speech, action, and livelihood. So even though view and intention come at the front, really the starting point of the path, if there was one, is speech, action, and livelihood. And it's to look at our behavior. It's genius, and this is what behavior therapists say to this day, is basically if you change what you do, you'll change how you think and feel. And it's very, it's been very true in my experience. <clears throat> so looking at these things, uh, you know, service, wise association, ethical training precepts, meaning the, the precepts to not cause harm, taking these on a daily basis. They're actually things we can do. I actually am starting to like ritual a little, a little more these days because what it does is a ritual is just a sign of remembrance it doesn't matter about it's not about devotion for me personally it's not about you know that something is going to necessarily help me 
uh, or like take care of something for me, but it's more of a sign of remembrance of when I take the precepts after I meditate, you know, to not cause harm. It's a remembrance that I can carry throughout the day. It helps me remember that. You know, when I take the refuges in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Song, it helps me remember this path. And so when someone cuts me off and I want to, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I can't do that. <clears throat> you know, I'm wearing my Meditate and Destroy hoodie with Against the Stream on it, and I'm well, this close, right? <clears throat> uh, I'm also a big fan of, this is just a personal sharing of my own, of the idea of Sabbath. I like having a day out of... My teacher encouraged me to do this years ago, and I took him up on it. I still, for the most part, hold to it. Every week is taking a day to pretty much do nothing. No work, you know, very minimal correspondence or things, but mostly what I'll do is I'll sit, I'll meditate, go on walks, might exercise a little bit, but just really, you know, minimal TV or phone, just kind of really taking some time to slow down, that behavior has really served me well. And so this is a really helpful thing to look at, and it's as a reflection, not again as trying to, and it's such a powerful thing, this kind of, this judgy mind of like, oh, I'm a bad Buddhist, I don't do any of this shit that he's talking about. <laughs> right, but instead just kind of reflecting and seeing like, it's one of the easiest ways to think better and to feel better is to, is to, change how we act and so it's one of the first things I always ask people that I work with and look at myself it's like what is it that I'm doing or what is it that I need to stop doing that's the other part of this what is it that I need to let go of or stop doing that would maybe free up a little bit of mental space that intention and then it helps me connect with that intention So lastly, I wanted to talk about the psychological training, so intention on the level of our mind, how we train our mind with intention. The three intentions, which I'll I'll talk about, Mikey already talked about renunciation, or renunciation and generosity, so this is one of the things that we want to incline or keep in mind or to recollect. You know, mindfulness is a contemplative practice, so that means that we're contemplating. You know, it's not just present time awareness. This is the receptive quality of mindfulness we talked about in the instruction tonight, receiving every part of your experience as it is. This is kind of the acceptance or the let it be without judgment, the just standing near, observing quality of mindfulness. But there's also a responsive quality. There's a bringing forward and an offering quality of mindfulness and so we want to practice this quality of uh, generosity is the is the giving right and renunciation is the letting go so renunciation actually means not needing anything extra so in this experience here i am what's the intention when we notice the mind and it's it, it helps us work with greed when we notice the mind's greedy or wanting craving when it's trying to acquire something or when it's being possessive about something, the intention of renunciation, of looking at that quality in the mind and saying, can I just let things be good enough? Can I, let, can I not need anything extra here? Can I practice that letting go? And then bringing forward that quality of generosity. And then there's these other two intentions, which I'll talk about the next couple weeks. Uh, the intention of goodwill. 
I really like this. I used to actually not resonate with this word at all. Goodwill. What does that mean? Right? It sounds really old school and foreign. It sounds like something Shakespeare would write. It's like, I don't know, what is goodwill? But it's a really general blanket, you know, intention that basically has the understanding that uh, well, it combats aversion, anger, and resentment. It has the understanding that all beings deep down desire well-being, whatever that means. We all want to be well. You know, we want to not suffer. We want to experience ease. We want to experience peace. We want happiness. We want freedom, whatever that means. We want goodwill. And so this is the intention of, of practicing, looking at the many flavors, and this is the practice of bringing forward metta. Right? So letting go of ill will and bringing forward this quality of softness, gentleness, kindness. The Buddha said that this is so rudimentary that there's no reason to ever not have a mind of metta. It's not niceness. It's not needing to be nice all the time. It's not this kind of cheesy, bullshit, spiritual thing that spiritual people can do. But it's just a gentle, it's a gentle, receptive, open, easeful, you know, understanding. It's actually a pervasive, Sharon Salzberg says it's a pervasive worldview. It's not even necessarily any type of sentimental, emotional experience. It's a view that we all want ease and well-being. So to try to meet, the Dalai Lama says, and it says in the Metta Sutta, to try to meet every part of our experience, every person we come into contact. He says, what would it be like if you met every person as if like the ideal mother would her child? And that's the high bar. That's the bar that the Buddha set in the Metta Sutta. What would that be like? I bet the world would feel a lot safer. I bet we'd be a lot less possessive. We'd be a lot less defensive, a lot more open. How would the mind feel like that? And that's kind of the first inclination. That's in the beginning of practicing metta and goodwill for me. It was just almost a curiosity of like, I don't really believe this. And this is the part of the Dharma practice that I'm not really interested in. But what would the mind, what would my mind be like if that was there? And that's the thing that we want to start to incline towards. And there's the intention of non-harming or compassion. So letting go of uh, cruelty, aggression, violence, and bringing forward compassion, a caring for, a nurturing So similar to metta, but uh, compassion is a movement of the heart in response to pain in particular. Metta is appropriate all of the time. Pleasure, pain, whatever it may be, is just this general understanding of the ease of well-being, of goodwill, you know, bringing that forward, that kind, friendly attitude or quality or view. But this practice of compassion, non-harming, is a bringing forward of a nurturing quality, a caring for what's difficult, what ordinarily we don't want to turn towards.
So I want to read this. Uh, you know, there there are two types of this mental training, and they're kind of qualities of this mental mental training that are interrelated. One is this contemplative awareness. So this is keeping your intention in mind. So it kind of it's almost that remembering. Oh yeah, metta, remembering that, bringing that up. And so what we do in our actions help us to do that, but also through meditative practice. Mindfulness is not just, right, it's actually bringing to mind these things. So we talked, I talked about this earlier, so bringing to mind metta, bringing to mind compassion, practicing bringing that, keeping our intention in mind. And that's that first mental training. And one of the discourses, it says, whenever you want to perform a bodily act, you should reflect on it. This bodily act, or this bodily act I want to perform, would it lead to self-affliction? To the affliction of others or to both? Is it an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, the affliction of others or to both, it would be an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results, then any bodily act of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful bodily action with happy consequences, happy results, then any bodily act of that sort is fit for you to do. And so this is really actually a beauty, it's simple and dry, it's like, well, no shit, dude, right? (laughs) But it's a really beautiful thing that the Buddha is offering is he's basically saying, reflect, Reflect regularly. That's a part of Dharma practice. It's a very, that's a part of wise effort, is cultivating, intentionally developing, bringing to mind metta compassion in the moment, in the experience, and think, what is the kind, compassionate response here? What is that? What would that be? And we may get it wrong, and, that's, and it's all about, in Buddhist practice, the intention. It's not about, you can't get it wrong. If the intention's there, that's what you're cultivating and developing. Now, you may miss the mark, or you may not get the results you want, but the intention's the powerful thing. And so we're developing that. That's that first mental training, keeping our intention in mind. And the second mental training or type is the uh, practice of abandoning or inclining the mind. So abandoning mental states that have arisen that aren't helpful or useful and inclining the mind towards mental states that are helpful. So it's similar, it's similar to this first type, but this is kind of the practice of really looking into the mind with the mind and seeing what the quality of the mind is and trying to lift it or trying to drop it, right? says, all experience is preceded by the mind, ruled by the mind, made of the mind. If you speak or act with a corrupted mind, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart does the tract of the ox that pulls it. All experience is preceded by the mind, ruled by the mind, made of the mind. If you speak or act with a calm, bright mind, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. So we practice this with effort with a balanced effort, with a non-moral effort, not a good or I shouldn't be having anger in my mind. No, totally anger is a normal, healthy response. You know, that's a very natural response to what you're experiencing. But seeing if we can start to be a little more creative than just hating our anger or trying to get rid of our anger or acting on our anger, being a little more creative with it and saying, all right, what does it need? Stay out of the story, 
take responsibility. The anger is here. What what does it need? What could I do to take care of it or start to lift it or change? I don't know. And maybe I'll get it wrong, right? But to practice with it differently, do something different. <clears throat> and sometimes, now we don't talk about this a lot, but sometimes you need to just tell the mind to shut the fuck up. <laughs> And the Buddha says, it's not all the time. We need kind, compassion, whatever. But sometimes, and I'll do this with myself and friends or people that call me about the same thing over and over again or when I'm, my mind is complaining about the same thing. I'll be like, dude, just stop. Just stop it. No more. You don't get any more airtime. Do something else. <laughs> Distract it. You know, do something else. I like that. The Buddha talks about abandoning unskillful mind states, leaving it at the side of the road. Just being like, you've been riding with me for three hours. I offered you this ride, and that offer's off the table. You have to fucking find a new ride. Right? It's like, I know I told you I'd be your designated driver for the evening, but you got way too drunk, and now you're going to have to stay at the bar and Uber home. Uh, so the last thing I want to read, this is some helpful, uh, some helpful, uh, useful information by Joseph Goldstein, especially for Westerners. He says that, although discerning what's skillful and what's unskillful in the mind is basic to the Buddha's teaching, in our Western culture, it's a very delicate process. For many people, it is an easy step from recognizing a particular mind state like greed or hatred as being unwholesome to the feeling that you're a bad person for having it, or that somehow it's wrong for the mind state to even arise. This pattern of reaction simply leads to more self-judgment, more aversion, and more suffering. It's not helpful. right? And so what he's saying is basically it's not about trying to not have greed, hatred, and delusion arise into the mind, but what we do when they're there, are we able to have a clear view, a clear understanding? Are we able to take ownership for that, this understanding of karma, that whatever I do with this, it's going to create? And am I able to try to start to incline the mind in a more creative way, practicing with intention, through our behavior, but also through our mental training through mindfulness practice. So I'll leave it there. Um, I'm interested to hear y'all's experience. I'm sure everyone has a mind that's somewhat like this, right, at times. Uh, 